This is the 451. I'm Summer Brennan. I'm Jesse Hirsch. And I'm Jonathan Mann. And we are a podcast for the resistance. Can we talk about Jason Chaffetz for a second? Because if you must. this guy, this guy, I'm this telling guy. you, did yeah. you guys hear this about how he not only is he want to uh, look into the who's leaking the Flynn stuff, but he wants to <laughs> bring the guy that set up Hillary Clinton's email server, Brian Pagliano. Right, right, and with like a felony charge. With right? a felony charge. He's still on that instead of paying attention to the things that literally, you know, a thousand of his constituents filled up his town hall with to yell at him and berate him for not paying attention to and instead he's like but but hillary but hillary but her emails against the nuclear explosion oh my god making a face right now so it's been it's been a couple weeks now like so much has happened it's hard to it's hard to even know where to begin but but we could talk about flynn a bit because i've been curious summer what you have thought about what you know right after flynn got um fired or or let go as it were resigned whatever he resigned happened. to spend more time with his family or whatever it hit the for lack of a better way of saying it i'll just say like it hit the resistance like a lightning bolt right like it felt like a accomplishment of an accomplishment it felt like a moment and i'm and i've been sort of torn about it because i felt like in some ways it didn't seem like as big a deal as folks were making it out to be like i and that's only because i i wonder it's like what was and i, I was wondering what your take might be on this like what do you think was different about flynn the Flynn situation from like any other fire thing that should have been a scandal, but wasn't like, why was this an actual scandal? Why was this a scandal that led to that may or may have not have led to him resigning? Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, because of the severity of what it, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, an adversarial government interfering in our own democracy. So I think in a way he's a fall guy, right? I mean, Oh, interesting. Right. One of several to come, I would imagine. Right. Um, that it, you know, that would be my not 100% informed opinion <laughs> about it. But I, yeah, I yeah. mean, if, if you're talking about what is it, does it matter that he's in the cabinet or not? I think it does. And obviously, yeah. you know, um, people were like, well, he's just going to be replaced by somebody, you know, as bad or worse. But with Flynn, I think that while he also serves a scary function that will be replaced by someone who also does that function, I think he brought to it his own agenda as well, which yeah. was terrifying and perhaps had the potential to make worse the agenda of those around him. Um, right. He was, you know, virulently Islamophobic, I believe, was so an ad- advocator of genocide. And yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say these things, I don't have you know proof of it, but, but if I was going to be doing an analysis on him and guess what his goals are, he seemed like somebody that would be on board with uh, a genocide of Muslims in the name of um, in the name of you know making the world safer or something like that, but that would involve oh terrible terrible things. So I was very happy to see him go, um, just because I hope that he can like fade from. I don't have to see his face anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it it's worth celebrating his departure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, it it was pretty thrilling. It was definitely thrilling to watch, and I, I, you know, it just like it gave me, it, it, you know, in terms of hope, it definitely gave me some. I just, there's this, I just had this niggling thing, like, like saying, like, um, it's not, it's not necessarily like the beginning of the end, or I don't know, you know. I hope, I hope it is, but, but I mean, that's kind of what like Chaffetz is saying, you know, and what what Rand Paul is saying, like, we're good, you know. We took care of the we took care of the problem, so let's yeah. just yeah, yeah. The bread, yeah. the bad apple, he's yeah. gone. So well, uh, that's yeah, that lends credence um, to the fall guy right. like theory is that they're just like okay, right. we'll get him out and pin pin it on him. It's worth noting that uh, last week one of Trump's picks to tur- to replace Flynn. Did you guys see this, Robert? Yeah, he was like, "No thanks, I didn't." Yeah, <laughs> Robert Harvard turned down the job, and uh, he did cite family <laughs> as the reason <laughs> officially. Why not? And then unofficially, well, unofficially, what? It was Bannon. Unofficially, it was like. I'm not going to do this job. So from the New York Times, two former national security officials who've worked closely with Mr. Harward said he would be unlikely to take, he would have been unlikely to take the position without assurances that he could run the uh, National Security Council free of intervention by political advisors. Meaning like the Grim Reaper works there. I don't want to also work there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another another one of his associates said something about that he thought it was just too chaotic, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that it was kind of a, a just a show, I think. I think that might have been the term, yeah. 
the sad thing is it sounds like we would have wanted yeah. someone like that. Like the person that turns it down right, is probably exactly. the best we can hope for in terms of actually being in the room. I feel like the it's a feature, not a bug phrase is a little overused at the moment. But um, but the thing with the, you know, totalitarianism and chaotic. Adam Gopnik wrote a Talk of the Town piece about this in this most recent New Yorker. And it was like, you know, the chaos that comes with totalitarian governments is maybe by design or maybe not. It's usually they can't actually function properly because they don't have enough support genuinely to to work the way um a a true government needs to um but that you know the 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 chaos even if it's not intentional is one of its greatest assets assets in what sense uh what what is the the end game i mean he's talking about like what no one could have entirely predicted was the special cocktail of oafish incompetence and radical anti-americanism that president trump's administration has brought yeah. Um, and autocratic regimes with a demagogic bent are nearly always inefficient because they cannot create and extend the network of delegated trust that is that is essential to making any organization work smoothly. It's not oh, just a government, yeah. but anything. The chaos is characteristic. Whether by instinct or by intention, it benefits the regime whose goal is to create an overwhelming feeling of shared helplessness in the population at large. We will detain you and take away your green card or no... Now we won't take away your green card, but we will hold you here and we may let you go and we may not. So that sense of uncertainty and arbitrariness that comes from chaos. Arbitrary is a perfect word to describe how the Trump administration feels. It feels very arbitrary. Yeah. Just like this, that, blah, 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 you know. I was saying to Jesse a little bit and I will say now that I'm wondering if we need a new format i'm not sure hopes and fears is really the best way to address stuff right now sure i don't know i mean i'm i don't know what you guys think about that i i, th- I feel like something hopeful though is nice is always nice um you know or just like what are we doing to resist this week or what's like i like the idea of having like just a what are you doing this week to resist i think that's great i would like to do something that's like just like a what are you thinking about i often have just like these random thoughts that don't necessarily fit in any part of the show, but I think would still be interesting in some way. Okay. And I don't know if you guys have those thoughts too, but I do. I don't have them uh, on tap. <laughs> but, uh... um, tell us what. So, what have you been thinking about, John? <laughs> Jonathan, what's on your mind? Here's something that I've been thinking about that is not is not necessarily relevant to anything else. But I've been talking about been thinking about um, Trump's. <laughs> this is going to sound really weird. Okay. I've been thinking about like how just like what it must feel like in the body of Donald Trump like which is what does it feel like to be him That's super in, random. in his body like occupying his body and and what and w- the way I started thinking about this was because I y- you can read any number of articles and we'll link one in the description for the New York Times about what he eats um, and he eats like almost exclusively it sounds like fast food mm-hmm. and uh, McDonald's mcdonald's taco bowls you know fried chicken like he eats a lot of fast food and so the first thing that i started thinking about was like anybody that's ever been on a road trip or anything and and subsisted on a diet of fast food for any you know you know how that feels it does not feel it does you know feels good going down does not feel good (laughs) once you've consumed it so i was thinking about that and then i was thinking about how much tv he watches which is another sort of well-known thing, well-documented thing that you can read about. Um, and I was thinking about how it feels to watch a lot of TV. And that also does not feel very good, right? Like you, if you sit and watch three hours of TV, you do not feel great after that. Like it just depends kind of feel- on the TV. Touche, Summer. <laughs> but but do you, do you have that feeling after watching TV where you're like <laughs> – your eyes feel like sunken and no, like I'm feel- capable of watching like I'm I can definitely binge watch like a Netflix show, like a good yeah. one for yeah. a good four hours before I start to feel like maybe I should get some air. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah but- so so I was just thinking about like those two things combined. He just must not feel great. Like and I was thinking like maybe that's part of his how he keeps up this uh the the sort of anger and rancor that he has is just like mm-hmm. he his the gastrointestinal stuff alone that must be going inside oh of him with oh. with yeah. uh, with Ew. all the fast food <laughs> sorry but it's true inside Trump inside Trump <laughs> that just can't feel good right. it just can't feel good well he's up tweeting at like three in the morning so yeah you know 
Um, my thought this week. <laughs> I, have, I have one thought. Um, did you did you read the, did you guys read the story about? Um, it was just like a package of all the things that liberals like uh, potentially being eliminated, like PBS, the National Endowment oh. for the Arts, AmeriCorps. Yeah, you know, like like all of them for some reason lumped together in one, just like fell swoop. Right. Um, you know, there was that, and then there was also this week the um, that memo that was leaked uh, about the National Guard being mobilized potentially to help help ICE do enforcement on immigration. Yeah. Right. Um, those things, I don't know, uh, feel very much to me like kind of that same sort of feeling of just being like, we're just going to throw this out there. And even if this doesn't actually happen, it's going to be so demoralizing to people. Right. We're going to terrorize you with the what ifs. Yeah, totally. Um, so I'm, I'm consciously, I've been consciously trying to, until the writing is really, really on the wall, not necessarily, you know, go full on panic mode every time one of these news releases comes out. That's interesting because it, w- it was so heartening, right, with the executive order on immigration that when the, the rubber met the road, like people came out in a, in a big way to resist. And I think it's I think it's a good idea to not to not overreact necessarily um, at every single every single thing. It's like a that. hard it's a hard call. And I think it's also based on one's individual capabilities. Um, and it, I mean, I don't know that having a rule about it for all time sure. will help everyone. <laughs> no. But no, but I mean, but I but I, I, I agree. And, I, you know, as you guys know, I've changed my um, media intake a lot in the last couple of weeks just because of work obligations and family obligations. And everyone has to do that sometimes. Um, and so I am, I am reading the news. I am engaged even a little on social media, but not to the degree that I was. And, and part of that for me is doing what you're talking about, Jesse, is kind of not spending as much time in the speculative zone. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think people do need to spend time there because you can, uh, you know, early responses depend on people that have already have a cogent argument against something and, and have planned a response so that, you know, you can have a protest right away when something Happens. So I don't know that I have a like a thought, a specific thought to share. You don't gotta give a thought. I have no thoughts. I have no thought. <laughs> I have no thoughts at all. <laughs> do you do you, you can share the tumble I think the tumbleweed story is a good story. It's not relevant to politics. It's okay. That's why it's a random thought. Um so yeah. I so the thought of my co hosts is that I have a tumbleweed. No, I was <laughs> um so I am in the rural southwest north of Santa Fe right now. And it is very uh, lovely and um, quiet and rural. And there are tumbleweeds that blow by the house like you're in a cartoon of the Southwest. And so I have one on my desk because they're kind of neat. They're they're, uh, invasive species. They're not native to America. So I guess I'm going to tie this into like immigration. We are a country of immigrants um, when it comes... No. (laughs) Immigrant tumbleweeds. No, but um, when it comes to... the, The America we know is... It's a recent invention, whether we're talking about the people that are here or even the animal, and especially the plant life. Um, a lot of iconic things like American is apple pie and apples are not native to America. There um, you go. Yeah. Tumbleweeds are also not native to America. They were an invasive species that kind of came here in grain shipments from Russia. I forget exactly when, whether it was um, 18th century or 19th century, but and they were very successful in the Southwest. But they're now this like iconic American West kind of cowboy symbol um but they're they're not from here just like my ancestors who are not from here so same with mine yeah <laughs> i like the idea of a tumbleweed sitting on your desk like i don't know there's, there's something nice about that it's a pleasant thought yeah it looks cool so i thought okay i'm gonna just it's decoration anyway. yeah. so what are we doing to resist this week guys i got a chance to uh volunteer at the dsa again um and that was fun um i fixed their button machine i spent a bunch of time making dsa buttons cool and they had a great conference um with a bunch of uh, they have a there's like a sister organization to the dsa the democratic socialists of america uh called young democratic socialists of america which is like college students and things and they had a nice they had a great conference um over the weekend and i made a bunch of buttons for those people and that was uh really fun Cool. So what are you, what's your resistance stuff this week, Jesse? Uh, so my neighborhood is starting its first ever uh, chapter of Surge, and we're going to meet up in someone's house and uh, talk about next steps, things we can do on a really micro level. For, for people who are unfamiliar with Surge, it's, it stands for Stand Up for Racial Justice, and it is a group that was kind of formed alongside of Black Lives Matter as 
uh, people who want to be allies uh, with people of color who don't necessarily belong to that demographic group. And so they do a lot of work to support other organizations that are already out there, like Open Roads, um, that are working on immigration and anti-racial violence and things like that. So some of their actions lately have been on uh, racial profiling, kind of agitating local politicians um, to work on stricter enforcement against that and uh, distributing signs, anti-Islamophobia signs to local businesses saying, you know, that that won't stand here, things like that. That's so great. Yeah, Surge, it's S-U-R-J, and you can find many different chapters all over the country. You know, just search on Facebook or um, or, or just yeah. Google them, you'll, you'll find them. We can put a link in the show notes too. So, Summer, what about you? You were t- uh, you were telling me about recycling and yeah. Uh... Um, so, I mean, I guess my resistance things are sort of on the very big scale and on the more in the very small scale that you might not really classify as resistance. Um, I'm because I'm working on a writing project that's about feminism, so I'd like to think that that is on the grand scheme of things like contributing to the intellectual mm-hmm. environment about resistance. But on a more basic level, so I'm in rural New Mexico and they do not recycle at all, nothing. Um, and I was very surprised to find that out. And so I was just starting to look into, first of all, how can I recycle my own things, which I did find out, yeah, to drive them <laughs> to Santa Fe County. Um, but <laughs> So that one's been solved. Um, but then I'm just curious, I'm starting to look into like, who are my local government officials here and what are the existing efforts to get recycling to happen and what can be done? So I'm just wondering if I can contribute to that effort while I'm here to try and encourage recycling. It's it's small and it's not particularly Trump related because this has been going on through the Obama years, obviously. Um, but it's a way to contribute to trying to make things a bit better, I hope. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and the, you know, those things to me, I, to me, I really think like those kind of like local things make, you know, make all the difference. This week on the podcast, uh, we interviewed our second Republican guest. Um, we had uh, Tom Nichols. Jesse, do you want to tell us a little bit about sure. him? Uh, he is a professor of national security affairs in the National Security Decision Making Department, where he is also the course director for security strategy and forces. Uh, he was a former secretary of the Navy fellow at the Navy War College. Uh, he has written a book called The Death of Expertise. Uh, one of several books, right? One of, one of several books, yes, but that's the most recent one. Uh, he is a, an expert on nuclear proliferation and also um, Soviet, so what is the term that we found? So, Sovietologist. <laughs> yes, Soviet Russia and, and current Russia really as yes, well. exactly. Yep. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's hear our interview with Tom. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, I guess we'll just dive right in. Uh, you wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. And I guess just generally, how do you feel like what you were writing about applies to our current situation? You know, it's interesting because I started uh, the piece as a blog piece about three and a half years ago. And um, I didn't really write it about now, you know. It's interesting if people come up to me and they say, God, you know, your book, you must have really been writing about what's going on now. And I, and I said, I really wasn't actually. Uh, this was, and I think that actually is worse because it wasn't spurred by some um, contingent event right. like the election of Donald Trump. I mean, this was a long term trend that I've been worried about for years mm-hmm. that's now come to fruition in what we're seeing in modern American politics today. Well, in what ways did you see it manifest itself before our current situation? Well, in the book, I point out that even back in the 1980s, when I began, insofar as, you know, I became a card carrying member of a profession or an expert in my own right sometime in the late 1980s, um, that it was interesting to me even then, you know, people would say to me, oh, you study arms control? Well, let me explain to you what we ought to do about the SALT II treaty. (laughs) I'd be like, "Uh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Just sit back for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's something and I actually asked one of my uh, asked one of my first bosses. I worked at a, a company that did defense contracting and foreign policy stuff and he said, "Look, nobody argues with microbiologists." He says, "Everybody mm-hmm. has an opinion on foreign policy and they think they're an expert." Well, 30 years later, people do argue with microbiologists. <laughs> that's right. True. That's true. We've actually gone from 
you know, again, I say this in the book, I got it, you know, back in the 1980s, okay, everybody was scared of nuclear war. And I, and even today when people say, well, you know, we ought to do about ISIS. And I understand because we're scared. And when people are scared about foreign policy, these are things we vote on. You want to have a say in it. It's very important. Uh, but people now say things like, oh, uh, you're a, you're an air, uh, you're an aerodynamic engineer. Let me explain the Bernoulli principle to you. We'll kind of find out what your area of expertise is, and then they lecture you on it. And I think where this really uh, becomes wedded to our politics is the word that I use in the book and the word that I use every time this conversation comes up, narcissism. Mm -hmm. We have become an unbelievably narcissistic society. We cannot endure the idea that we don't know everything, that we're not experts on everything. We can't this notion that, as you said earlier, you know, just sit back. I, I've got this because I know this better than you do. That is intolerable to people. And I think that this election, and I think the election of Donald Trump, who, you know, got up there and said that the, the experts are terrible. We don't need experts. Experts are lying to you. Um, you know, that is the ultimate triumph of this kind of mindset. It's interesting to see where there's sort of been a fracture because you think that the impulse to, you know, educate oneself and know more about a topic would be a positive impulse. But there's something sort of going wrong between, oh, I want to know more about this and doctors are all lying to me. We don't need vaccines or whatever the, the issue is. And that's partly because people educate themselves purely as a form of political combat. They don't educate themselves because of the joy of knowing things. They don't sit down and read a book. Um, I was just talking with my uh, one of my colleagues uh, just now on social media, in fact, about a book called The Big Con uh, mm. that was recommended to me. Now, I don't. I'm a you know political scientist. I'm a, mostly a Russian foreign policy and nuclear weapons guy. I don't know anything about the history of con men, and so I sat down with this book and said, I'm going to read this book because I don't know a thing about this. And I read it and I enjoyed it. And I felt that kind of great, that wonderful spark of saying, boy, I, now I know something I didn't know. And I have something to think about. People don't do that anymore. They say, I don't, I want what I want. And I disagree with somebody that I don't happen to like. So I'm going to do just enough searching around for information to see if I can get an advantage in, in this debate. And I'm going to deploy facts like little, um, you know, like little barbs, like little, um, um, bullets as best I can, but I don't really want to learn anything because then I would have to think about it and then I would have to reflect on it. And then I might have to have a more nuanced view and I'm not here to have a more nuanced view. I'm here to win arguments. And that's the problem. Do you see an antidote to that? I mean, is, is there a way to kind of gently let people know that they don't know as much as they think they know? I, I don't know. And I, I was just having a debate about this with a colleague of mine, a friend, um, James Poulos, who's written, and I, I'm here to plug my own book, but let me plug James's, <laughs> <laughs> um, who's written a book called The Art of Being Free about Tocqueville. And, and James mm -hmm. and I disagree a lot about, you know, should we, is it unhealthy to kind of mock people for these views or to be those sneering elites that we are caricatured as being? And I think James thinks that's not a good idea. Um, I, I think that um, the change in this will come either by reactivating some sense of shame in people, which, you know, modern American society has killed. Um, I, and I actually don't like doing that because by my, by my vocation and by my temperament, I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I don't use shame in the classroom, Good. at least not very often. I mean, it's just not, I don't believe in it. It's not a teaching tool. I mean, I take my students seriously and my students are expected to take me seriously. And it's very rare that I, that I've ever had a student who really has to be dressed down and, you know, reminded who's in charge of the classroom. Uh, that, that doesn't, I think, I think James and others would argue that doesn't really work in a modern society. On the other hand, I think we've allowed shame to die. Um, in in my parents' time, in my childhood, the idea that um, an expert on something would walk in the room and that my mom or my dad would stand up and say, well, you know, I have a few ideas on space flight mm -hmm. or, uh, uh, you know, nuclear arms control. or that, that They would have questions, perhaps, or they might want answers to concerns they have. But the idea that they would present themselves as alternatives uh, they would not only not do it, but they would probably mock others who would. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think because there was there would be some sense of shame there of, you know, that this is just so self-evidently stupid. 
The other thing that I think is going to change it, if not any a kind of rebirth of shame about such behavior, is a disaster. And this is where I keep trying to be optimistic, and all the people who've read the book um, keep saying, you know, you didn't leave me with much hope, and I'm trying. Oh, no. I, I, I want to, but I, I also, you know, have to go where the facts lead me. I think it will take something um, painful, a Great Depression, a war, a pandemic, uh, an international crisis of some kind, uh, because as I, I, I've been saying about things like the medical, challenging the medical profession, you know, everybody argues with their doctor until their fever gets to be about 102 or 103, and suddenly they're all great believers in medical expertise again. And I think that may be what, it may take some kind of crisis to remind people. So how, do, how does uh, a big catastrophe like a global war, I mean, do, do you really think that uh, a bunch of people, self-styled experts would react to that and be like, well, okay, I guess I was proven wrong and I'm humbled and, you know, no longer will I think that I know more than I do? I don't think they'll have much choice. I mean, if you look at uh, the um, one of the, in one part of the book, I note uh, a very wise uh, piece written by Evan Thomas, who's Nixon's biographer. And he says, look, before World War II, we played it the way the populace wanted to play it. And we did, you know, Smoot-Hawley and we did protectionism and we did, you know, we, we did the isolationist nonsense of letting the League of Nations fail and all that stuff that basically was giving people what they wanted. And what did we get? We got a global depression and World War II. After 1945, it wasn't that the self-styled experts or the populists said, well, maybe we were wrong. It's that they merely that they withdrew back. Uh, from public life. There were fewer of them, frankly, after World War II, because I think just as there are no atheists in foxholes, um, there were there are no populists after Pearl Harbor. By 1945 into the 1950s, you had a cadre of educated, um, civic-minded, it's not just education intelligence, it's civic-mindedness, uh, elites who created a global a system of global trade and cooperation, who created NATO, who created a technologically advanced U.S. military and uh, cemented a position of American leadership in the world. I mean, for all this talk about how the elites have failed, if you look at a half century uh, going from the 1940s into the 21st century, the record of the elites, I think, is pretty damn good. Speaking of NATO, I'm just curious, it's shifting just a little bit, but, um, you know, there's a lot of talk uh, lately about NATO and Trump's lack of faith in it and concern over its future. And I'm wondering how much danger you think the alliance might be in with a Trump presidency. I think it's in a, I think it's in a tremendous amount of danger uh, that is mitigated primarily by the fact that everyone around Trump is a, you know, sort of normal establishment American. And I don't mean a conservative or a liberal or a Republican or a Democrat. Um, the idea that you know NATO is obsolete isn't even really a consensus in the American public, unless you ask the question the right way. Should NATO pull its weight more financially? Well, we've all said that. I mean, I was saying that in the 1980s as a NATO guy. I mean, I, that's not controversial. The idea that NATO is obsolete and that Russia isn't a threat and that the United States shouldn't defend itself, that, that's, a, that's really the way you should put the question. Do you believe the United States should, should uh, abandon its allies and abrogate its international treaties? You're not going to find a lot of people are going to say yes to that. Right. Uh, but nonetheless, what I do worry about is that other countries take their cues from the things the president of the United States says, whoever that president ha happens to be. And I was deeply critical of President Obama. I mean, I was I like to think that I was as brutally critical of President Obama on this because President Obama's approach to NATO was kind of passive and didn't didn't much care about it. And I think the Russians took advantage of that. I think President Bush valued NATO, but he put it on the back burner because he was obsessed with the war on terror. Other countries take their cues from this. And I think Russia particularly is taking its cue from this. And my big concern about NATO and Russia under a Trump presidency is that the Russians now believe they have a free hand to pretty much do whatever they want, which means they're going to make a terrible miscalculation and we're going to end up in a crisis that this foreign policy team cannot possibly handle because it can barely handle governing day to day. And then we're going to be in some kind of unforeseeable, horrible black swan event that um, you know could bring us to the brink of a global event. And that, that worries me a lot. 
Yes, me too. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm here. Well, good, good morning, everyone. I'm glad I'm being so cheerful. Yay. No, I mean, but it's important Let's, to talk uh, about. Let me try to leaven this with one note of optimism, which is the presidency is the voice of the United States and people take their cues from it. On the other hand, the leadership in the United States is more than one guy. You know, we even Russia has a leadership that's bigger than Putin. And the president is surrounded by other adults and responsible professionals and other branches of government who get a say in all of this. So, I, I mean, I think. But I mean, do, do you really see strong checks and balances on him taking place right now? You know, I was trying to go with the optimism line. Man. <laughs> you're, you're ruining it, Jesse. Do you, do you mean like, for example, totally. like Senator McCain in Munich, like giving his speech right. and not naming Trump, but but you know, emphasizing? Is that sort of what you mean? Are the other voices and well, I also, but I also mean other voices. I mean that that you know, the president has a cabinet, and there's a cabinet there for a reason. Um, the yeah. president has a national security council, and uh, there are people. Um, I really object to the term deep state. Uh, but I will accept the people who use that term when they mean a kind of permanent foreign policy bureaucracy of experts who are there, you know, day in and day out through presidential administrations. And there are people with deep experience um, and who share a particular worldview. You know, I don't think you're going to find a lot of people who work in the foreign policy establishment who think NATO is obsolete, for example. Uh, right. And they they can provide advice and they can help execute policy in a less destructive or, or reckless or random way. Uh, so I think there is a case for optimism. You know, we use the term bureaucracy in it, and of course, none of us like bureaucracy, right? We hear the word bureaucracy and we think of the, the local DMV and, um, and, you know, rightly so. On the other mm -hmm. hand, bureaucracy can also be a very stabilizing force in a large country. Uh, our, our, the founding fathers created the United States, our, our political processes, so that things would not happen fast. You know, we are a big, clunky, you know, people talk about gridlock. And whenever I hear the word gridlock, I say that's that's by design. That's a, that's a feature, not a bug. And mm -hmm. the same is true with the separated powers of our executive departments and the Congress and the, the regulatory state. I mean, all of that is meant to be kind of sludgy and slow. And I think at a moment like this, uh, a lot of people, I think people should pause to recognize that there might actually be a virtue in that. Mm -hmm. Are you troubled by the fact that a lot of these people that you're talking about, these career diplomats, uh, a lot of them seem to, if if they don't, aren't perceived as loyalists to Trump, that they are kind of being shown the door? The career uh, folks who the, who know a lot of things that are very useful to the government and to the people of the United States are derided as um, politicized or hostile merely because they do not agree with mm -hmm. uh, the president. And I think that's dangerous. And I think that is an emanation going back to the, to the book and to the mm -hmm. kind of themes I was talking about. That's an emanation of this notion that too many people in America have that if you're smart and educated, you are instantly and by definition the enemy of the common man. That's crazy. <laughs> that is what really bothers me. And it's it's crazy, but it's, it is the howling of a nation of wounded egos. I mean, um, I'm not a huge fan of Peggy Noonan's views on Donald Trump, but be, long before Donald Trump, um, Noonan coined a great expression that I use all the time. She said, we have become a nation of sullen paranoids. Hmm. And that's part of what this is, that <laughs> this sullen paranoia marinated in a kind of excessively narcissistic environment. And I talk about how teaching is meant to affirm the um, confidence and the identity and the self-actualization of students, that television is no longer the news telling you what you need to know, but asking you what you would like to hear. The internet is this big kind of garbage spewing engine that's there. You know, he, no. he, he said, ironically, while we were all doing this right. on the internet, yeah, uh, sure. but that it, you know, that, that it is 90% uh, this massive bullshit generator that people go to, to get their uh, confirmation bias cemented in their heads. And, right. and this is making us, um, it's making us paranoid. It's making us resistant to learning. It's making us mean spirited with each other. And that's coming out in our politics because anybody who says, look, you're wrong about something, or I know more about this than you is immediately branded as undemocratic, 
not a team guy. I heard that one last night about uh, uh, some Trump supporters saying, well, they say, what do you think about John McCain? Said, well, he's not a team guy, that you're an elitist. That word, of course, is now, you know, to toxic smear thrown out uh, at, a, at every turn. And it's, it's making it impossible to conduct not just our politics, but to, to run a, a large multi-ethnic federal technologically advanced superpower. I mean, we simply cannot go on this way. Um, we, we noticed that you are a Sovietologist. Um, and we were curious what your thoughts are on uh, what's been going on with uh, Flynn and the involvement of, of Russia in, uh, you know, either either believed or confirmed involvement in Russia in the election. And what is a Sovietologist, actually? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you use that word because before 1991, Sovietologists were people who studied the inner workings of the Soviet system, uh, that we were, um, we sometimes referred to us, ourselves as Kremlinologists, which wasn't quite right. Kremlinologists are people who studied the inner workings of that building. Um, but, it, but to be a Sovietologist was to be like a, a China expert. I mean, the China experts this day are called Sinologists. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that after the Soviet Union fell, I said, well, obviously, I'm not a Sovietologist anymore. I'm a Russia guy. I'm a Russia <laughs> expert. Now I'm back to saying, yeah, you can call me a Sovietologist because they're pretty much acting like the old Soviet Union. So I guess we're kind of back to mm. that. Um, I think it's important to note that R Russian Soviet Kremlin interference, let's call it that, Kremlin interference with Western elections is not new. Um, you know, Khrushchev had a pretty clear preference for John F. Kennedy. Uh, mm -hmm. There was the, the ironically, you won't believe it if I tell you this, but the Russians were actually uh, more hoping for Reagan than Carter by 1980 because they hated Jimmy Carter so much. Really? Yes. Um, actually, it doesn't surprise me that much, but yeah. Well, they just they were so tired of Carter. They thought Reagan would be another Nixon. And boy, were they wrong about that. Uh, but yeah. Uh, this to me was really over the line. This Russian involvement in 2016 was not just the usual kind of subtle and sneaky messing with each other's systems that we did during the Cold War. This was a frontal attack on American political institutions in a way that went unanswered. Both, I would say, Obama's answer was too little too late and Trump's answer has been not an answer at all. It's been to defend the Kremlin. Uh, now, obviously, the vice president seems to be taking a different line on this, which, again, raises this question of, you know, what actually is American policy at this point? Um, but this, to me, was a shocking interference with the American political system, driven by the fact that the Kremlin saw it all as a zero-cost exercise to them, because most of the things they've been doing uh, since the 1990s, since certainly since after 9-11, when the Americans have become preoccupied with other things, have been zero cost to them. I mean, what's the risk? If you're Putin and, and someone comes to you with a plan and says, look, we're going to induce chaos in the American system, and we're not really trying to get Donald Trump elected, but if that happens, that's a bonus. Um, what we want to do is delegitimize the American system, make uh, the world think less of America, kind of pull them down several pegs. If you were Putin, why would you say no to that? And and so I'm very concerned about it. I, I don't know why, Jen, and I, I'm, you know, again, I speak only in my own capacity here. I don't know why General Flynn resigned. I, my personal view is that I think this was an inside Washington uh, drama. You know, General Flynn is a, the, the man's a hero. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a competent, solid officer who has run big organizations. I, I just was having a hard time with, well, I talked to the Russian ambassador and I don't remember what I talked about, struck me as an explanation that wasn't gonna fly. And the minute the, the story came out about the vice president being out of that loop, that's when I said, oh, this is not gonna end well. That, you know, if you're the national security advisor and the vice president goes out there and defends you and then gets blindsided, uh, that's not usually gonna turn out very well for you. And it did. Um, so I don't think we're done with the Russia story at all. I think that Russia is going to dog this administration for years. And I ask kind of a random left field question. You know, there's that photo circulating with Flynn at a, you know, at a table um, with Jill Stein in Russia and all that. And I don't know what and, you think of Putin. that kind of thing. And Putin, right. Also him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know people like use, use that to illustrate something. And as somebody that's sort of worked 
in politics a little bit. I know that, you know, appearing at a banquet table with someone doesn't necessarily mean something. But what's your what's your take on maybe that specifically or that in general? Well, appearing at a banquet table with Vladimir Putin means something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, you know, if, if the Kremlin thought, uh, you know, thought enough of you to put you at a table with Jill Stein and Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, and again, I can't speak um, for Mike Flynn uh, or anybody else. I mean, per, there's there that to me, there's a judgment issue there. But now with that said, what strikes me is how many people in America didn't seem to be upset about it again, because of the low level of political literacy of the American voter. People still, I, I think, don't quite understand what Putin's about. I, I contributed to that confusion. I should own up to my own expert failures here. 15 years ago, I wrote a book um, whose last chapter said, well, this new guy, Putin, he seems like he could be okay. I don't think we need to worry about him just yet. Maybe this will turn out okay. <laughs> and how have you revised that? <laughs> <laughs> What's the addendum? <laughs> yeah, that, I don't uh, really give up on copies of that book anymore. I think part of expertise is accepting when you're wrong, willing to take correction, willing to revise your views, willing to talk with other experts um, who can then help you, know, help you to get to a better understanding of your own subject. Uh, but that's different than the American people at this point saying, you know, I don't really remember anything beyond last year. So what's the big deal about Putin? And you say, well, he invaded Ukraine and he seized Crimea. And their answer is, where's Crimea? Yeah, now's a great time to take a map out and just take a look at <laughs> where things are. Geopolitics, it's... One of the first things I talk about in the book was a, a, a poll done by the Washington Post saying, do you think, it's the same to the average American, you know, do you think that the United States should have some kind of military response, that we should become more involved in Ukraine? And the average, the two things that came out of the answers were, first, the average person <clears throat> was in favor of a strong response to Ukraine directly in proportion to them not knowing where Ukraine was. Wow. That is, the, the people who got it the most wrong about where Ukraine was on a map were the ones most likely to press for a strong U.S. response. Hmm. And how wrong were people on a map? Map tests are hard for everybody, right? I mean, if sure. I'm an expert, if you handed me a map of outside my area of expertise like Africa, um, you know, I'd be, I'd be lost. Uh, but the average respondent now ukraine is the single largest country whose borders are entirely within europe and the average right. the average respondent was off by 1800 miles oh my god so so yeah. it wasn't just that people didn't know where ukraine was they didn't know what continent it was on right now these are the same people saying you experts have screwed everything up and you need to listen to we the people and we don't need you experts telling us what to do and on and on and on but then when we ask the you know, the, the wisdom of the people, uh, what, what should we do about Ukraine? Well, they have plenty of ideas what to do about Ukraine because they think it's in Latin America. I wonder if you, what would you say sort of to help people um, in conversation that encounter uh, friends, relatives, coworkers that say stuff like, no, like peace with Russia is a great idea. Trump has it right. Like, let's ally ourselves with, with Putin. My answer to them is to, uh, if somebody is that reasonable to start there, <laughs> then I, then I, I'm actually encouraged and I'd say, well, okay, let's think about this. You know, what is it you think, you know, we should do and here's some ideas and here's the history of the way the Russians act. And, you know, what is it you want out of foreign policy? I mean, I can have a reasonable discussion with someone who right. says, look, I think we ought to have a good relationship with Russia and I'm willing to hear your side of it. It's when people come out and say things like, um, I, I had a discussion with a friend, my, one of my best friends grew up with him since childhood. And I said, well, why did you vote for Trump? And he said, because unemployment is out of control. Nobody's working. The country is a disaster. And mm -hmm. I said, I said, dude, we're in Massachusetts. Unemployment in this state is four and a half percent. Yeah. And he said, he literally said, that's not true. And I said, well, okay, right. where do I go from here? I said, well, you've known me your whole life. I think I'm a pretty smart guy. I grant you that maybe the unemployment rate's a little a, a little shaved here because of the labor participation rate, but I said it's not, there is not, I said unemployment isn't worse than when we graduated from high school, when, you know, we graduated in the middle of the recession of the 70s, he says, and, he, and again, he shook his head, he said, that's not true. And I said, where are you getting this that you think I'm lying to you? And he said, Hannity. Oh. The conversation just kind of ground to a halt. I said, well, mm. I, I don't know what to say. I said, Hannity's wrong. I literally said, 
Hannity is wrong and I'm right. <laughs> and he said, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to say, now let's think about your view on this. I just said, dude, you're, he's wrong. You're wrong. And I'm right. And you're just going to have to trust me on this. And he kept shaking his head. And I said, it's going to come down to it, buddy. You're either going to, you're either going to believe Sean Hannity who gets paid to tell you this stuff, or you're going to believe your best friend of 40 years you know, who has no dog in this fight other than, you know, my friendship with you. And he did not want to hear it. He was, I mean, he was visibly anguished at having to choose between what he heard on Fox News every night and what his, you know, highly educated friend of 40 years that, you know, I mean, we used to make pizzas together as teenagers <laughs> in a restaurant. Right. Um, he, he, he was really having a cognitive dissonance implosion. And I don't know yeah. what to do about that because I'm not best friends with the whole world. I, I can't, you know, I, I can't have that same conversation with every citizen of the United States. Yeah, I think what's what's been jarring sort of for me in this is that I have been, you know, like yourself, alarmed at uh, the state of political affairs, especially with regards to the Kremlin and Russia. Um, and I've been accused of being like a warmonger or a hawk because I'm like stating alarm at the, at what's been going on. And so I think that's sort of a, a thing that comes up for a lot of people that are concerned about Russia. They, you know, people say, oh, it's a red scare or or it's, you know, you want war with Russia or something like that. And I don't know if you have something specifically to that. I think they're taking their cues off of the fact that they have committed to Donald Trump. They've committed to this presidency in their hearts. I think they know they're probably wrong, but they're enjoying the, sh the resentment and the schadenfreude. Mm -hmm of discomforting people they see as elites. And so they are much like the president themselves. They're just doubling down hmm. on things they know are probably wrong. I, I doubt that anybody really believes that you or I are warmongers when it comes to Russia. I mean, I know I've read, I wrote a whole book on why <laughs> nuclear weapons are, are bad. Okay. You know, that was, yeah, that practically yeah. was the subtitle, you know, nuclear weapons are bad. Okay. <laughs> Good subtitle. And I've said, you know, that we have to avoid these kinds of conflicts at all, at almost all costs. People have said the same thing to me. Well, you're just a warmonger. You just want war with Russia. Well, I'm the guy that for 25 years has been saying Russia needs to be integrated into the G8 and they need to have a seat mm -hmm. at the table at NATO and we need to have more transparency and we need to stop using terms like Cold War. The problem right. is that people who are flinging those accusations at you are doing so because they want, they don't want to argue about the actual policies that are coming out of Washington, partly because they don't understand them, and partly because anything that's critical of the choice they made in this election threatens their sense of identity so deeply that they have to reject it as a matter of first principles. And it's the only way to do that is to straw man you and to put you into such a ridiculous position that they can sleep at night saying, well, I may have made a lot of dumb choices here, but at least I'm not a warmonger who wants a nuclear conflict with Russia. You don't think it's genuine? No, no. And I, and I mean, I, I am now, I'm perfectly comfortable arguing that a lot of people who are making these political arguments are doing so in bad faith and they know they're doing it in bad faith. Mm. Well, I know we've kept you on a long time. Jesse and Jonathan, do you guys have any other questions you want to ask? Do you want to do you want to plug uh, properly plug your book so people know yes. Yes. Uh, where to find it? And when it's it's out now. Yes. It's out. Yes. Uh, it's the death of expertise, the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters. Uh, it's published by Oxford. You can get it online. You can get it at Amazon and in your favorite neighborhood bookstore. So, uh, are you uh, doing any talks about it coming up? Or? I am. I will be. Uh, I have a Facebook page. Um, if you go to my either to Facebook, um, look up Death of Expertise, or if you go to my Twitter uh, account, which is uh, at Radio Free Tom. Uh, there's a link to my Facebook page and it has all the events I'm doing. So, wow. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so much to cover and I could probably keep you on for another hour asking you like minutia questions about, <laughs> <laughs> about all of this, but yes. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about your expertise. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, I will try to leave us all on an optimistic note by saying all will be well. Uh, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. So I always think it's really interesting having um, conservative guests on. 
Yeah, for sure. And and it's like while you you know we've said this a lot. It's like while you don't agree with everything, it's like obviously there are things where we overlap on. If you can find those, if you can like agree to disagree and even disagree vehemently in some ways, but find where you have these common points, um, that can be really valuable. Right. Well, like along with the death of expertise, what she's talking about, obviously, which I totally agree with. I mean, it's a very noted notable decline um, there's also i think been a huge decline in discussion i guess that's it's it's sort of out of mode out of style to have a conversation with someone who like might say like i am terrified of general flynn i think that he's a, a i really have bad opinions about him and but you know to have a conversation with someone that thinks he's a hero but yet is doing worrying things is you know challenging for some people but it's i think it's still important too to have those conversations. I want to tell you guys, did, did, I, did I mention that on Friday night I sat across from someone at dinner uh, who had big Trump pins on? He had been to inauguration. He was wearing an American flag tie. Oh, I saw like I saw briefly your tweet about this. Do, do tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was at a Shabbos dinner and uh, he sat down and he just huge, huge Trump pins all over. Wow. Um, and I, I had that moment where I thought, you know, this is this is my chance to have some dialogue with someone who doesn't think like me. Yeah. And I didn't take it. Oh, no. I take it. I didn't. I, because because I feel like it's one thing to talk about, okay, someone who voted for Trump, who, you know, maybe is kind of like questioning things now, right. or, you know, who's, who's a little bit moderate and voted for him along certain lines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just felt like it was probably going to be nothing but emotional and heated. Um, mm. But but then I also left the situation and thought that was a missed opportunity. So I don't know. I'm... I'm, I'm I'm neither here nor there on that because part of me thinks that I should have had that conversation no matter what. I'm so interested in those moments. I haven't really had occasion yet either, but I'm so interested in those moments to try to start from, is it like worth in that moment to just start with, hey, you know, like you voted for Trump. Like I'm very anti-Trump. Like is can we find the the, the point that we have in common? Like what's right. what's the one what's the one starting point that we can both agree on? Like even yeah. if it's just something really small and simple, like, I don't know. That's, I always, in my, in my like, fantasy zone where I go, where I imagine myself having that conversation, that's where I imagine. <laughs> fantasy zone. <laughs> and, like, kumbaya is playing. Reaching across the Yeah, aisle. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, it all goes really well. Turns out we're all humans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but, I mean, you're right, though, because it's not a Twitter conversation where you can just, like, be like, well, shut up, Snowflake. You know, sure. like, these are two human beings sitting across exactly. from each other. And, it, and if you start from a place of kind of like, hey, I'm not trying to antagonize you, but I just want to say... Uh, you know, where can we get from go from here? I've heard it suggested that a good way, a good place to start is asking people, you know, what their main concerns for the country are or what right. made them excited about Trump. Like, right. what what in your own life made you excited for this candidate? I mean, I guess it's a lot. You're like, this is a guy you don't know. And you're like, tell me about your deep fears. Like, <laughs> how how is your family doing these days? Like, I guess it is kind of personal. Um, and it's hard when somebody is like, you know, broadcasting their support for a particular candidate so um loudly vehemently it's a different story well you know i mean i have the i had the hillary the sticker, sticker yeah and there was a guy on the train and i was going up to new haven and he you know kind of gave me a hard time about it but he was just like why do you have that sticker it's time for a new sticker time for a trump sticker oh and I was god like, i was like no it's not <laughs> see that's 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 not how to approach it <laughs> that's like me but i don't know jesse i mean it is hard because it is very confrontational and it's kind of like, I mean, to me, it almost feels like, why are you wearing that swastika? Like, what's... <laughs> no, no, it does to me, too. It, it felt very aggressive, and especially at a Shabbos dinner, you know, like th- this week with with us stuff with that uh, reporter asking the question about yeah. anti-Semitism. I just, you know, it's, it seemed to bridge too far. So um, just to take us home here for a minute, um, my wife and I last weekend went to this silent meditation retreat um, up in Massachusetts. It's this place called the Insight Meditation Society. Uh, and it's been there for, gosh, like I think they just had their 40th um, anniversary. It's and a nice place. I've been there. It's so, it's like so amazing. And so my wife is eight uh, months pregnant now. And the last time she was eight months pregnant with, with Jupiter, our son, um, three years ago, we went there for five days. And it was just like, it was one of the most... It was just the best. It was like such a great experience for both of us. Um, well, great. I'll say for for me, intense, like intense and great and, and very intense. Uh, 
And then this time we went for just a night um, because we were supposed to go for the weekend and we got snowed in. Uh, so we had to leave early. But, um, you know, there's just something about like sitting in this giant room full of people um, and we we're all just sitting there, you know, quietly meditating for like 45 minutes at a time. And then you do these Q&A sessions with the teachers and they would um, so many of the questions were about like how to apply the practice of meditation in this time of of such despair and feeling, you know, you're in this room with about 150 or something people and just to feel that everybody sort of coming together and 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 meditating on this one, we're all sort of thinking about the same kind of stuff. It just had this really crazy energy that I mm. that I really enjoyed. The the theme of it was um about embodiment. It was like about noticing your body. And um, I wonder if that's why I started thinking about Donald Trump's body. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, I try not to. For you. Yeah. I try not to think about Donald Trump's body myself. It's like but... it's like don't think about the pink elephant. Um, oh, sorry. But anyway, that's uh, I highly recommend if you can. Um, you know, when I went on the five day, it was the first time I had ever done any kind of real meditating. And it's quite scary and and quite difficult and um, but very rewarding and you don't have to literally like you don't have to do anything. It's like you can do it right now just by stopping and noticing anything about what's going on. You know um, how long how long did that uh, good feeling last with you after you left the retreat? <laughs> you know you know with a five day one, uh, it lasted quite a while. It lasted like I don't know a couple weeks where mm. I was so in that mode. And there's just something really powerful about stopping and noticing. And like, that's that's all that meditation is. It's just like, just stopping and noticing. And um, and I, I, a little bit less this time. Um, <laughs> well, as soon as you like open Twitter. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> exactly. But still, I will say, like, there are moments now where I, if I'm feeling really uh, frustrated or, or whatever, if I just stop and I'm like, you know, just feel myself sitting in the chair or or feel my feet standing on the ground like it just makes it it really does make a huge difference and it's such a simple little thing um so anyway that that was my my weekend meditation experience we had a little little hiatus last week but thanks to everyone for being understanding and to you guys for being understanding that my change in location ended up being a little little trickier than i thought so so it goes so it goes indeed um, but uh, we'll see see everybody next week. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Hey folks, it's Jonathan here. Just want to remind you that you could leave us a review or even just a rating on iTunes and that really helps people find us. Um, you can email us at 451, all spelled out, at protonmail.com. Um, our website is the451, all spelled out, dot com. You can call us and leave a message at uh, 510-402-6081. And thanks so much to everyone that's called and emailed. We really listen to everything and read everything. We're just not always able to respond to everything. But, I mean, we really, really, really appreciate it. Um, you can find us all on Twitter. The show's Twitter handle is the underscore 451, just the numbers. Jesse is Jesse underscore Hirsch. That's H-I-R-S-C-H. Summer is at at Summer Brennan. Um, Brennan is with two N's. And I'm at Songaday Man. That's with two N's. Man, M-A-N-N. Um, sorry we missed last week. Thanks so much for sticking with us. We've got some exciting guests lined up for you guys. And uh, you've been listening to The 451, a podcast for the resistance. Hey, my name is Amy Martin. I'm calling from Northampton, Mass. Progressive Oasis here. Uh, grateful for your podcast. Really, really needed the wisdom and power of the rabbi you just had in your episode. We'll be sharing that widely with other people who need to get our feet back on the ground. Everybody's doing a lot, but despairing at the same time. I know you understand. Um, 
besides taking care of a teenager and an 85-year-old mom with dementia, my day job is working at Free Press, freepress.net, a national advocacy group that um, works on representing the public interest in media policy, keeping the internet free and open, uh, working for diverse and independent journalism and media. Anyway, the last thing I wanted to say was my moment of joy yesterday was going to the public library. Oh my gosh, we are so lucky we still have them to the degree that we do after budget cuts and our cuts, and etc. But I walked into my local public library to get out a book and just filled me with joy that we still have them. So there you go. Thanks for all you're doing. Keep up the good work. Bye.